Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. I am particularly excited about today's topic, polygenic risk scores, or PRS, is a hot topic in genetics in 2018. If you don't know the term, now you do, and you should, because you'll be hearing a lot more about them soon. But if you don't know the term, you certainly already know the concept. Polygenic scores are the type of cumulative risk tests that we thought we would have for everything after the Human Genome Project. That was the big promise, unlocking the secrets to common complex diseases that we live with and for the most part die of. We were going to find the variants associated with each disease, harmful and protective, add them up and tell everyone here's your risk. And we looked at common variation, first in hundreds of people and then in thousands of people and then in Tens of thousands of people, and still the scores reflected only a tiny fraction of inherited risk, clinically meaningless. And some people thought, me, me, I thought this, maybe it was always going to be that way. Maybe it just didn't add up. Maybe that wasn't how things worked. And as things happen, suddenly, but after a long time and a lot of work, suddenly we are seeing PRSs that may be clinically significant. Suddenly, the question of how to use these tests clinically is not hypothetical anymore. It's here and now. My guest today runs a lab at Harvard that has just published a major paper describing their work with PRSs and discussing both clinical use and uh, how these tests can be a model for many other potential diseases or, or conditions with a heritable component. You've probably heard about it because it's been so much in the news the man of the hour. So I'm delighted that he is here today. Sekar Kathirison is a researcher and clinician who specializes in the genetics of cardiovascular disease. He's the director of the Center for Genomic Medicine at Mass General in Boston and a newly minted Harvard professor. So congratulations, Sek. Thank you. Yeah. So, so great to have you here today. My pleasure. It's really uh, wonderful to be able to chat with you, Laura, um, on this interesting topic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm like all lit up about this topic. So can you explain what's, what's new here? Like what, what, let, let's maybe go through the methodology of what you did and what it showed. Yeah, I mean, I think we can take a step back and, and really think about um, a given disease, for example, heart attack, which is what we've worked on. Uh, this is a disease that in the early 1950s, um, somebody named Paul Dudley White showed had, um, had a genetic component, meaning that people who had a family history of the problem were more likely to have um, the disease. Uh, and so back then, of course, we didn't really know what, what specific, that was before actually even DNA was described. And so um, we knew that the disease clustered in families. And so 60, 70 years later, uh, people have been trying to really figure out which specific letters in the DNA sequence contribute to risk for heart attack. Uh, and the initial ones identified, of course, are ones that had a reasonably large effect on disease risk, um, so-called Mendelian or monogenic forms right. of heart attack. Right. So the, and, mono and the monogenic diseases that we test for now in the clinic. Exactly. And they, they represent they, about one in 200 in the population carries a mutation in one of you know, three, three or four genes. And uh, as a result of carrying that mutation, those individuals have higher cholesterol lifelong and about three to fourfold increased risk of having heart disease compared to those uh, who don't carry the mutation. But we, we started by looking at people who had an early heart attack. Okay. So what I mean by that is men less than 50, women less than 60 about 5,000 of them. 
and then said, hey, can we figure out what the genetic basis for early heart attack is? And surprised to find that only in about 2% of the 5,000, so only about 100 of the 5,000, could we actually identify a monogenic mutation. Right. Okay, so that was kind of surprising to us. And we're like, well, what's going on with everybody else? So what the answer seems to be in a large fraction of everybody else is the polygenic model. And this is a model that we've been able to work out over the last decade. Um, and what it shows is that instead of a single gene variant of large effect pushing somebody to have a heart attack at a young age, what we have here is the additive effect of many, many nudges in the genome, many, many single nucleotide polymorphisms that in aggregate basically push a person to early heart disease. This concept of, of polygenic risk scores or you know, PRSs has been around for a while. In fact, our first paper on this topic was in 2008 in the New England Journal of Medicine, where we looked at about nine SNPs and added them up as a score and said, okay, if you actually had a higher score, uh, you actually had a higher risk of a heart attack. And the most recent work essentially just builds on that earlier foundation. And now we're not able to just look at nine SNPs, but we looked at the entire genome worth of common variants. Yeah, you looked at 6.6 um, 6 million SNPs? Exactly, common so, SNPs, common so we're, variants. So we're, um, um, yeah, well, we're used to, we're, we're, we've been looking at GWAS studies for over a decade now. Yeah. And they've been intriguing in terms of like, oh, that's an interesting you know, connection, or maybe that gene is involved in the pathway or something. But the right. problem has always been that it's like not very useful to tell somebody you're at, you know, 0.3 increased risk of whatever. Um, That's right. Um, yeah. So what's changed um, in the last couple of years that's really enabled um, you know, uh, uh, this advance of having meaningful risk uh, stratification is um, that our ability to distinguish which variants have an effect on disease risk versus not is much better because of the large sample sizes of the genome-wide association studies that are happening right now. Mm -hmm. And for coronary artery disease, our starting point for this analysis was a study of 60,000 cases with heart attack and 120,000 controls. And we systematically compared you know, the frequencies of all 6.6 .6 million polymorphisms against cases versus controls to see which ones have an effect and what the effect size is. How much does each variant actually increase disease risk? And that, that, ver that, that increase you know, can go anywhere from 1% or 2% increase for a variant to maximum the largest effect variant is like, the common variant is like 30 or 40%. But the, the but what we're able to do now with these larger studies is more precisely say, is it a 1% change or is it a zero change? Is it a 2% change or a zero change for all of the 6.6 .6 million polymorphisms? We couldn't do that earlier when the studies were small. So that's, that's number one, why we're able to do better, do so better we're, work. We're, we're looking here at a difference in those big databases, which we've been collecting now for, you know, 15 years or so are starting to pay off and really computing power. 
Is that the, that's right. The second, so the second advance is the algorithms to kind of pull together all of the variants into a predictor. Um, and there, there have been some methodologic advances there, um, and, and we've taken advantage of that. The third advance um, is uh, that this enabled these new genome-wide polygenic risk scores is um, – is, is large-scale data sets to uh, validate and test the scores. Uh, and what I mean by that is this very open data resource called the UK Biobank, which is a half a million people in the UK where there's genotype data available. We know the heart attack status. About 25,000 of them have had heart attack. And we're able to, we were able to use that data set as, as a way to test and validate um, the the scores that we developed. At the end of all of it is actually, it sounds very complicated, but it's very simple uh, from, and I'm speaking about this from a, you know, a cardiologist who sees patients in terms of preventing heart attack. And it ends up, the, all of the genomic risk for an individual from the common variants can be boiled down to a single number. And that number, if you calculate it in a bunch of people in the population and plot that number, it ends up following a bell curve. Some people are high, some people are low, most in the middle. And the properties of this number are very reminiscent of things that we use every day in clinical practice to assess risk for heart attack, specifically cholesterol. So if you look at LDL cholesterol, same thing. You get the number, it's a bell curve in the population. Some people are high, some people are low, most in the middle. And so that's really what excites me about the polygenic risk scores yes. is that we now are able to reduce it to a number. So, so, so I'd like to, to keep me on talking about, about cardiovascular disease, the bell curve when I read the paper. So here's how I see it. And it seems to be the same in the, the other, which we're going to get to later, that some of the other conditions that you've looked at, it doesn't meaningfully separate out the person who's in the 20th or 30th or 40th percentile, like to be in the 40th or the 50th. It's not meaningful, but when you look at the tail end, whether that's 2% or 5% or 8%, you get a meaningful difference, clinically meaningful difference from sort of the rest of the population. you think that's a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, I think what's clinically meaningful really depends on what interventions you have available to those you identify as high risk, you know? So, so for heart disease, you know, just like for cholesterol, just take the cholesterol example, based on that number, if you have a high number, let's say it's 170, most people understand that just because you have a high number, you're not automatically going to get a heart attack, you know, or because you have a low number, you're automatically protected from heart disease, right? Heart attack is the interplay of many, many things coming together. Same thing here. Your genomic risk is a number. If you happen to be high on the number, it doesn't mean it's deterministic. Similarly, if you're low, it doesn't mean you're automatically protected. But what we have now is a, another factor that can be measured that really has the same statistical properties for prediction as all of the other things that we use right now in practice, like blood pressure and cholesterol. And two important differences, though. One is this number can be calculated at birth, early in life. So it's really... Birth. <laughs> yeah, so it's really kind of, I think somebody, uh, one of my uh, former trainees actually wrote an editorial recently and, and labeled it as the first risk factor, which I think is a very nice way to kind of capture what's unique about these polygenic scores. Uh, the second thing is that you, um, 
it adds information beyond what we already measure. So it's orthogonal to cholesterol, to blood pressure. And I'm, I'll get to this in a minute as to it, it does seem to pick out a group of people who are at risk based on just this, not you're not going to catch them using the standard metrics. So those are the two important things. And um, and then coming back to, you know, exactly how much higher risk you are, if you happen to be on the bell, end of the bell curve, um, it ends up, again, looking very much like cholesterol. So if you're in the top 5% of the cholesterol distribution, you're roughly fourfold increased risk for heart attack compared to everybody else. And it's the same thing here. If you're in the top 5% of the um, two and a half to five percent, let's say, of the uh, bell, of the of the polygenic score distribution, this number, you're about three to four fold increased risk for heart disease compared to everybody else. So one of the things that when we're looking at genetic risks, we often think about is that the risk accrues earlier in life and so on. And that's true with FH. Uh, is that also true? Did you look at that? Like, are 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 you? Is this a lifetime? risk compared to the population four times, or um, are those people in any way more likely to have an earlier heart attack, earlier heart disease? It's a great question. So this brings me to the, the, the analysis, uh, a separate analysis from the published paper that I want to speak about, which is, and this is what keeps me motivated in terms of continuing with this work. We did a study of a set of about 2,000 individuals now with heart attack, young age, men and women less than 55, hospitalized all across the United States, collected into a research study. We compared their genomes to people who are uh, healthy and in, um, in a prospective cohort also had uh, genome sequences. And we first asked, of the 2,000 people with early heart attack, and how many could you find a monogenic mutation? similar to the earlier work that we had published, it's 2%, okay? Mm -hmm. And then what we were really surprised to see is that in 20% of the premature heart attack patients, this polygenic risk number, this polygenic score was the only thing that was abnormal. Um, so, the only so thing meaning that their lipids weren't sky high and exactly, so on. Exactly. But what about exactly. their family history? Like, how does it, so, how does it, ta do, do we have any way of knowing that? Because they probably didn't have Yeah, it. no, we do. So the family oh, yeah. history was a little bit higher in the high polygenic risk group compared to everybody else, but not that much. It's, it was like something like 40% versus 35%. So this number, this genomic risk number is actually independent of family history. It doesn't, it actually is even orthogonal to family history. That may be a little bit of a surprise to people because people equate automatically family history with genetics and may have the impression that this number should essentially explain all of family history. But it turns out family history is complicated. It's not just because families share much more than just their genome. Well, we're, we're they, geneticists, they, so we, yeah. we get that, right? So family yeah. history so, also encompasses things that are particularly effect, uh, interesting in terms of heart attack, right? Culture, diet. Exactly. And so I think that's why family history is not a substitute, basically, for this polygenic risk score. Yeah, yeah. I come from a people that eat a lot of schmaltz, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's kind of hard to separate it out. Well, so that's real. That's really exciting. And that's new news. Like I hadn't heard that before. Let me let me bring in one of the uh, frequent criticisms. Uh, let's say criticisms of the work because it doesn't say anything about the work, but it, criticisms of the use of personal risk scores in clinical settings, which is that we can give people this, but is there anything we can do? So there's two things that I that I that I 
you know, people generally talk about, and I'd like to talk about each of them. One is behavioral modifications and the other is medications. The knock on behavioral modifications is that for decades we've been saying if we could tell people what they're at risk for, they'll change their behaviors, and many people will tell you the evidence says that's not true. We need to separate out that issue into two parts. Part one is, is there evidence that adherence to a healthy lifestyle can counterbalance the inherited risk from polygenic scores? That's number one. And number two is informing a participant of their polygenic risk. Will that lead to a change in behavior? Okay, so I think that's the way I like to think about it, two separate issues. For the first issue of can adherence to a healthy lifestyle counterbalance inherited risk, we didn't know an answer to that until a couple of years ago. We published a paper in 2016 in the England Journal of Medicine that, that showed that, indeed, you can. People who had a favorable lifestyle score, we just made a simple lifestyle score of four things, um, not smoking, uh, being BMI less than 30, uh, fruits and vegetables, and then uh, physical activity. And if you had a, a good lifestyle score, your risk for having an event over a follow-up period um, was about 50% lower. And this is just among all high genetic risk individuals. People who had a uh, favorable lifestyle had about a 50% lower risk compared to unfavorable lifestyle. So that was, I think, among the first, to sh first evidence that, yes, you can, you do have control, that DNA is not destiny here, at least when it comes to the polygenic model, and that in eating better and having a healthy lifestyle will make a difference. The second part of this equation, which you point out, um, is, uh, is, you know, telling somebody they're at risk, um, you know, particularly genetic risk, has that been shown to improve behavior or change somebody's behavior? And you're exactly right. That's, that has not been proven. But I come, out, come at it slightly differently because I see patients who have had a heart attack, okay, already. And so they've already had the problem. And I, run, I ran a cardiac rehabilitation program for about 10 years at Mass General Hospital. And our whole goal was to help people change their behaviors after a first heart attack in order to prevent a second heart attack. And you know what? Hardly anybody changed their behavior. Okay? It was really hard. So that's just to say that behavior change is very hard, even in people who've already had a heart attack. So it's going to be very hard to, you know, even harder when people are feeling fine and you're just telling them they have high genetic risk. Right. So I think that, but that doesn't, that doesn't bother me at all. It just means we have to get better in trying to help people change lifestyle, which, you know, is a huge challenge. It doesn't devalue, I think, the, the information that might, you might want to give somebody about, about their risks. Um, so th that, you know, that's we do have, we do have some evidence in psychiatry. Some people have been working in, in the psychiatry area to suggest that while behavior modifications sort of, um, are hard, that the right counseling can make a difference in terms of how the information is received. So that might be sort of a, something empowering to genetic counseling or inspiring to genetic counselors is to find a way to make this information useful and effective. Yeah, I, I think that it's, um, I think it's nihilist, somewhat nihilistic to say, well, you haven't shown that, um, that knowledge of this information changes behavior and therefore 
um, you know, you shouldn't do this blood test, you know, because it's not, there's almost nothing that's been shown to actually change somebody's, change people's behavior en masse. Um, so I don't think that's right. the right frame. Well, it's probably um, also arrogant of me to suggest that when there's nothing that's been shown to do it, that genetic counselors are going to find a way. But hey, you know, like, <laughs> you have to be an optimist in this world, especially right now, because pessimism is kind of poisonous. So let's, let's start with that. And I, the part two of this is, is medication, so I, yes. so the, there's really, it's not even used to ask this question. We know there's medication that exists and it's a question mark, right? Nobody's done those studies. Does medication reduce risk in this population? Um, well, so it turns out um, we, we actually have generated evidence over the last uh, three years or so, uh, for, particularly for the polygenic risk scores for heart attack and asking if medications can lower the risk. So we already showed that lifestyle can lower the risk, but what about medications? And so the studies there involve a very commonly used medication to lower heart, heart, heart attack risk, which is a statin medication. And what we were able to do was get a hold of a bunch of completed statin trials, three of them. Um, involving over 50,000 people, and they they are already done. They're they're finished, but and the DNA was collected when the patients first came into the trial, and these are all trials of um, healthy at baseline. Uh, half the people got a statin, the other half didn't, and we're looking to see who developed a heart attack. And statins worked in every one of the trials to reduce the risk of a first heart attack. So we got a hold of the DNA from those trials and did an analysis simply asking, does the benefit of statin therapy in lowering risk of heart attack, does it vary by genetic polygenic risk? And we were able to show that the people that had high polygenic risk actually got the greatest benefit from statin therapy, both from in a relative risk reduction perspective as well as an absolute risk reduction, and really suggesting that, you know, again, this is a medication that could be quite useful in the subset of patients you identify as high polygenic risk. So now we have two options to help the patients who you identify. One is lifestyle counseling, and the other potentially is statin medications. Wow, that's really exciting. That's really exciting news. Um, and I understand your passion to get this into clinical use. I do think there's a really good question to be asked here. It's like we know we need to do more studies about the effectiveness, and do you introduce it narrowly as a as an issue of healthcare policy and study the individuals, you know, or do we try to introduce it widely, which makes it harder to study. To be fair. Uh, the effectiveness of it. Um, I'd, and I'd, I'd like to bring up a sort of requisite other thing. I mean, uh, um, I'm a genetic counselor and also a bioethicist. So a requisite other thing, which you kind of alluded to, which was that this developed with a British biobank. Um, we don't have as good um, numbers uh, uh, in terms of having, having, having data on people from other populations and I know that's a weak spot, right? And what do you anticipate? Um, do you anticipate these models fitting well with other populations or that being a problem? That's a great question. So, um, yeah, we, we should emphasize that um, the, the genetic, the, the base of all of these scores is the underlying genome-wide association study data for that disease. And if you look at the world literature on genome-wide association studies over the last uh, 15, 13 years or so, um, and there's, there's a recent kind of a review of all of this and looking at the 
ethnic makeup of the people in those studies, 80% of all the published studies are done in individuals of European ancestry. The next 18% are done in individuals of Chinese or Japanese ancestry, and leaving 2% of the studies for the rest of the people in the world. This is a very sorry situation, I would say. And, uh, and that's where we're starting now in terms of making these scores. So our score for heart attack is largely made in individual, from genetic studies done in individuals of European ancestry. We need to rectify that, and we can talk about how to do that in terms of uh, thinking about the rest of the world. So what we've done is specifically look to see how transferable is the score that we developed in largely in whites, how transferable is it to South Asians, East Asians, Hispanics, and blacks? Just an empirical question, you know, does it work in the other ethnic groups? And it turns out it does. And, and, and so the same score basically does predict risk in all the other ethnic groups, but the effect size drops off the further you are from European ancestry. And what I mean by that is, if you take the top 5% of the distribution of the score and compare their risk for having heart, early heart attack compared to everybody else, if you do that for whites, it's a five-fold difference in terms of risk, five-fold increase in risk. If you do that in South Asians with the same score, it's about a four-fold. Uh, Hispanics and East Asians, about three and a half or so, and then blacks, about twofold. So there's a drop-off in effect size as you go further out from European ancestry. So this opens up the question of, should the scores be used in the other ethnic groups? And I think we can talk about that, but my general impression is, as long as you convey the risk estimate that you, the best estimate that you have in the other ethnic groups, it's seems reasonable to use the scores because there are other tests in medicine that have the same property of having differential effect size in different ethnic groups. Um, so, and, it's the, and those, t those tests are widely used. So I have a, I have a question it, I want to, I have yeah. a question I want to ask yeah, you please. when you talk about in yeah, medicine, please. because um, I was telling, I was telling my mother that I was going to do this interview and she said, Oh, that's that thing 23 and me was doing. And I was like, this is what they wanted to do. Right. And then I thought, <laughs> yeah, exactly. How, yeah, and okay. So, so, um, and then I thought, how would you feel? So you're not you're not trying to market this in the sense that you've you've put a lot of this information out available for free. You're talking about putting out an app. It's not a, it's 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 uh, you're clearly interested in getting it into wide circulation, not sort of patenting it and holding on to it. Um, how would you feel if 23andMe was offering this? How did you feel about it? Do you feel like it needs to be in a clinical situation? Well, I, I think the um, th there's actually regulatory. I think there's uncertainty in terms of the regulatory yeah. issues around. Uh, no, no, no question. It would be a totally different interview of like, would they be allowed to do this? And that is right. right. I'm not asking you to yeah, answer that question. I, I think, you know, yeah. the thing is, you know, right now when I when a person comes and sees me. Um, uh, for a clinic visit, and I'm trying to assess a risk of heart attack, I'm asked to put their numbers into a, a risk score that is on the web called the Framingham Risk Score or updated now, the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, uh, pooled cohorts equation. And what I do is I take their age, their gender, their cholesterol, and a couple of other numbers. I put it in and out spits, you know, the, the, this is just a free web thing. And, and then you get a 10-year risk of having a heart attack, okay? Now, should that be regulated? 
you know? So the genetic risk information is literally would be no different from that. Well, the, the way it's regulated, right. say, the way it's regulated is it's regulated by the fact that they're in your office – and but but it anybody can but anybody can anybody can put their numbers in, in, in on the web yeah, without without having any any so doctor is, intervention. Is, so you're you're thinking so, of doing something similar, right? You're thinking of setting up an app that would that would use direct to consumer data to generate this score. Well, I, I think that again, we, because we don't know the, the, because of the regulatory uncertainty. Um, if we did that, it probably would have to be in a research setting. You know, where the patient sign a consent form knowing that they are, you know, getting this information on a research basis, right? Because it, we, you know, it's, it's, it's a little, it's, I think as a community, as a, as a, as a field, we have to kind of wrestle with this. I don't think the FDA has any specific answers per se on this. Um, they'll have to wrestle with this as well. Um, so, so that's one issue that direct to consumer, but I think more important or, or, or uh, not more important, but, a, but a parallel track, right? are people who have an early heart attack or who have multiple family members in, you know, who have heart attack, right, in their family, you know, in, affected. They, they're healthy. They want to understand their risk, right, their genetic risk. And right now we order a test. Typically it's, a, you know, maybe a, a panel for, uh, for familial hypercholesterolemia, okay, but I just told you that only 2% of the people who have early heart attack will you actually find a mutation, a monogenic mutation. But 20% of them, the major abnormality will be this and this, this polygenic score. And this polygenic score is not a test that's available right now. So I think that as a doctor-ordered test, it, you know, it, I'm working hard to basically make sure that something like this becomes available. Yeah. I'm going to move into slightly less comfortable, sort of intellectually comfortable comfortable grounds, because I think the case is very strong for me, uh, although I understand that that there's some questions about how you use it and, and um, you know, you, you're not going to give statins to kids when they're 5 or 10 or 20 years old. So, you know, what are we testing them? Is there going to be a problem with labeling somebody young is at risk and so on? And, 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 and what really brought it home to me is I saw this week that there is already a company in New Jersey offering to do a PGD testing that includes personal risk scores for cardiac, for cardiovascular disease, what you're talking about. But mm -hmm. also, and, and that's so like, that's one of the things with genetic tests is right away, their ability to move not only younger and younger, but also prenatally, where we're getting yeah. into a very different sort of moral calculus. Like, what should we be using there? And their test is not just for uh, early heart attack, but also and and for atrial fibrillation, but also for hypothyroidism, also for idiopathic short stature, uh, mental disability, um, and 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 so we edge into less comfortable territories with some of the other things that we can do the same sort of testing on. Yeah, I'm I'm very uncomfortable with the use of this kind of information to select embryos. Um uh you know for for pre for implantation um for the, the reasons that you just mentioned, which is it is a pretty steep slippery slope I would say to um to kind of uh, essentially removing uh, the diversity that we have in the, in the population, you know, um, at the same time, I'm, I'm personally uncomfortable at the same time. There are people who, you know, 
um, can make, I think, cogent arguments the other direction where they say, well, why do you want to, why do you uh, not want to uh, remove, you know, disability and suffering, you know? Um, and so I think this is, again, a, a, an area that is um, uh, really um, ripe for discussion. And uh, there has to be a eventually a somewhat of a consensus on this as to how to use this information for these uh, these these areas uh, that are kind of ethically and morally um, troubling. I'm also always dumbfounded by how fast we get from A, not from A to B, but from A to like Q, you know? Um, we're talking, there, there are interesting debates uh, on should we use personal risk scores for cardiovascular disease in clinical settings today, right? Right. And before we really finish having those reasonable discussions, there's people offering personal risk scores for mental disability in fetuses today. Right, right. Um, well, I think, I think that field, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of selection going on now, I believe, right? Because people, not genetic selection, but based on other things like, you know, um, at least for sperm donors and so forth, I think you're you're gonna people start looking at you know what how tall the person is and like you know what they have a college degree and all that kind of stuff, and so you know it it, it does move very fast and it can I think it can be quite troubling, um, and uh, it it really does need a very open discussion as to what's appropriate, what's not, what do we as a society think is the right way to proceed here. I think from the health domain, um, I think the other point I'd like to make, um, you know, I focus a lot on coronary disease, but um, we did show that the same approach um, can be used essentially for every disease that has a heritable component from common variants. We ended up looking at four other diseases in the paper, breast cancer, atrial fibrillation, and so forth. And um, the breast cancer results are actually quite interesting. And that's an area where, you know, it's a lot of work on genetic counseling and over the years. And uh, but very similar story to the coronary disease story. If you take a hundred women with, you know, early breast cancer, a small fraction of them, you'll be able to turn up a BRCA1 or 2 mutation. What's going on in everybody else? Yeah, no, and, this is a very real thing to genetic counselors yeah. because for years what we've said is, you have a family history, let's run a test, we run the test, we find something that's fine, we counsel to it. Otherwise, right. we say, you still have that risk associated with your family history. So we yeah. viscerally understand what it is to send people off saying, you have an unquantifiable risk based on family right. history. So I, I think that, you know, I, um, I think we're all very interested to see more data on uh, how can we quantify that risk and is it possible? Yes, and I think that what I, the, the couple of points I want to make about the other diseases is one, it is quantifiable, um, but then what intervention you're able to perform based on that risk, based on finding the people at risk, you know, will vary by disease. And I think the challenge over the next few years will be kind of marrying the risk um, to interventions that can reduce the risk, you know. And so I think we've tried to do that for cardiovascular disease. But, you know, for breast cancer, it might be something different, like, oh, maybe more intense, you know, more intense surveillance uh, for people in the tail of the polygenic score distribution. Um, for atrial fibrillation, it might be the same thing, where now you have this Apple Watch and and maybe that can detect the, you know, 
um, detect atrial fibrillation, and um, if applied in a very low-risk population, you're going to get a lot of false positives. But if you happen to be in the high polygenic risk score distribution, um, uh, have a high polygenic risk score for atrial fibrillation, then maybe you know there may be a role for in a certain age group. Maybe there's an enhanced role for screening with Apple Watch. So these are the kind of questions that I think as a, as a community, as a research and a clinical community, we'll have to wrestle with over the next few years. But I'm pretty excited. I mean, I think. Um, and 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 the fact that you know again a simple single blood test probably will cost less than 20 bucks 30 bucks a chip basically a genotyping chip you don't need despite the big number of 6.6 .6 million variants a million variants you don't need a whole genome sequence to do this Imp uh, snip chips and imputation very cheap with that data in hand you can calculate scores for a range of diseases you know um and you only have to do it once uh, in terms of the generation of the data, the genotyping data. The score calculation, you can do different versions over the years as data improves. Um, so I think the ability to do the scoring is, is, will really blossom in the next year or two. The, the marrying of the high-risk individuals with interventions to reduce risk will take more time. Uh, and that sounds like a conclusion. And I, and I'm very, I mean, I think, yeah, I think we are, this is just the start of these conversations, but um, a very exciting starting point. And there's really a lot to discuss um, moving forward. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I think it's a, it's a very exciting time, um, you know, to be in the field of human genetics, and I think it's a it's an important uh, new chapter. Uh, and I agree with that. And uh, and thank thank you all for joining us on the Beagle Has Landed. If you enjoyed this conversation, please go to the website beaglelanded.com. Subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. Thanks so much. Bye.